Anybody need a Bible? We want to get one put in your hands on this wonderful Memorial Day weekend. We're, guys, we live in the greatest country on earth. And uh, there you, that, that's an appropriate, I guess, woo time. And we're grateful for the sacrifice of every individual who's laid down their life that we might have this freedom. And of course, the greatest sacrifice came through Jesus Christ who laid down his life that you might be set free from sin and death to which we give God praise. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, then you've got your Bible. Take it, make your way in it. If you don't uh, mind, which I trust you don't, that's why you're here. Uh, to the book of Isaiah today, we're going to look at the seventh chapter in a message that I have entitled, God with us. God with us. So uh, with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. God, we're so grateful for your goodness and your mercy. And uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for just your willingness to meet with us and to minister to us. And so it's to that end, Lord, that we just give you this time and we say, have your way. Pray, God, you give us ears to hear you and hearts that are uh, open to you, God, and, and willing and, and yearning to respond appropriately to your word. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. We all say, Amen. Amen. Guys, from a wonderful king to a wicked king, that is the transition that takes us out of Isaiah chapter 6 and into Isaiah chapter 7. Now, if you remember right, you were with us last week, King Uzziah, he was a wonderful king. He was a great king. Now, uh, although his reign was tarnished toward the end by his transgression in the temple, overall, wonderful kings serve the Lord. His son, Jotham, who reigned co-regent with him for a number of years. You remember he was struck with leprosy having transgressed into the temple. But his son reigned with him, and he was a good king. But his son, Ahaz, abandoned the faith of his fathers, was an incredibly wicked king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and brought God's judgment upon the land. Now, if you want some additional reading, you're one of those who likes to do the research, wonder the context into which we're uh, studying, write down, read it later. It's 2 Kings chapter 16 along with uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. That would be the historical period into which Isaiah is speaking here. Now, I am of the persuasion that 2 Chronicles gives us a little bit more of a descriptive taste of the kind of man Ahaz was, and it reads like this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. Now, David, just a reference to King David going all the way back to the one that God had promised, okay? His dad was Jotham uh, immediately, but ultimately, ancestrally, he goes all the way back to David. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now you remember at this point the northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Uh, Judah had good and bad kings. Every king in the north in Israel was a wicked and bad king until they were taken into captivity. And so we're seeing here that he walked in their ways and made molded images for the Baals or the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations 
kings of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So Ahaz was about child sacrifice, pagan practices, idolatry, family. He took place uh, in it all, took part in it all. And not only did he personally take part, but he provided the opportunity for others to follow in his ways. And that's the scene in the nation of Judah when after the curtain closes in chapter 6, it pulls back into chapter 7. So let's take and turn our attention to the very first verse. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, a king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. And so his heart, that is the, the king's heart, and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So, guys, not only was there civil unrest in the land, family, there was civil war. Uh, Israel, now Israel's referred to as Ephraim here, just another kind of a name uh, to the north uh, for them, the tribe there, uh, had entered into a confederation with a pagan nation, we see Syria, and had planned an invasion of Judah into Jerusalem. And the plan, when you read the other uh, passages, and we'll actually we'll see it here in a little bit, was to dethrone Ahaz and put a puppet kind of king in his place who would be subjected to them. Now, when you read through those passages that I shared with you, that I equipped you with just a moment ago, you'll discover that in the early stages of the war, Syria and Israel, or Ephraim, were wreaking havoc upon Judah. Now, when you read verse 1 here, uh, you might be tempted to think, because it just says, well, they went up to Jerusalem, you might make the mistake of thinking that they just marched up to Jerusalem, and there they were. But ladies and gentlemen, they dealt out unrelenting devastation and decimation on the way to get to that point. They had killed 120,000 soldiers in one day. Now, you know, today when there's a, a skirmish or a war that takes place and the news teams are all over it, I mean, our nation is in upheaval at the loss of even a single soldier, and understandably so. The loss of one life is tragic indeed. We're talking 120,000 soldiers in one day. You know, they had killed the king's son, uh, the officer over his house, the second in command to the king. The king of Israel had taken 200,000 women and children and brought them back to Samaria, the capital of Israel at the time. Now, he ultimately returned them because a prophet named Obed came to him and rebuked him, said, hey, man, you've gone too far with this, okay? Uh, matter of fact, he said, look, uh, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. Hey, man, you have gone too far with this. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female servants? But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? In other words, hey man, you're doing the same things they're doing, right? 
Now hear me therefore and return the captives whom you've taken from your brethren for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. It's like, hey, you've got God's attention with what you've done, man, and you need to make it right. Well, Judah had been devastated. They had been decimated. And now as we come here to our present passage, uh, Syria and Israel are postured up on Jerusalem, okay, the capital of Judah. And Ahaz has every reason to believe that they will succeed in overtaking him and no real reason to believe that uh, they won't. And so he was freaking out, okay, or as the scripture says, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees are moved with the wind. In other words, shaken and unstable. No semblance of faith here, uh, only fear. Now, as far as he could tell, all would be lost, right? Including his life. I mean, they had just been marching forward, unrelenting. And we note that the people followed their leader. He was afraid, so they were afraid. There was no peace of God in their midst. They weren't looking to him. They weren't trusting in him. They were in that place that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2, having no hope and without God in the world. What a terrifying place to be. Without God, having no hope in the world. Now, in verse 3, we read, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Notice all the details. You know, that, this guys, this wasn't once upon a time, long time ago. There weren't three pots of porridge and, you know, just right. This, this is not a fairy tale. This, was, this would be like go and meet him at the corner of you know, name your two favorite streets or whatever, and you're going to find him here at this place at this time. This is real life happening to real people here. And these details remind us of that. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, uh, for the fierce anger of Rezin and, of, and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, uh, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, uh, the son of Tebel. Uh, he says, you know, don't be afraid because of all of this. Look, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus. In other words, Damascus is the capital of Syria. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Okay, so that's the king. And uh, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will, won't even be a people. Now, the head of Ephraim or the capital of Israel is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Now, listen, I don't know what this Pekah, whatever you say his name, had done, but whatever he had done was so offensive. The prophet, the Lord, they, they don't even call him by name. He calls him by name in the very first verse. After that, it's only the son of Remaliah. Won't even talk to him uh, about him by name. Uh, and he says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now, this is important, guys. Ahaz has already shown utter disregard for God, uh, utter contempt 
toward God. He's been reaping the ramifications of his own ways. And out of sheer grace, here's the point. Out of sheer grace, God reaches out to him uh, through the prophet and the person of Isaiah. And God says, Isaiah, I want you to take your son. Now, his son was going to be an object lesson to the king. Sheer Jeshub, or however you say, means a remnant shall return. This is what's going to happen, but a remnant's going to return. How do you like, to, how do you like that name? Hey, remnant's going to return. I mean, that's, that's your name. And he says, uh, maybe they just called him Remy. I don't know, but... They wanted to meet. He said, you're going to meet Ahaz again at this particular place, in this particular location, you're going to give him a message. Now, essentially, God was placing Ahaz in a place of decision, okay? He's going to bring him to a crossroad of decision, faith or fear, accept his word or reject his word, accept it and have a fruitful reign. Grace is available. Listen, you can be restored. You can be renewed. You've done all these things, but God has grace available to you. You can be restored. You can be renewed. You can accept the promise of his word. This is the message, right? Reject it and come to ruin. He says, you shall not be established. Now, the fact that Ahaz was already truly terrified by what was happening around him, guys, it becomes evident. It's clearly evident by the message that God gives him. God assures him in a fourfold manner. He says to the positive, two things, pay attention. Ahaz, listen, pay attention. He says, take heed, okay, A. And B, he says, stay calm or be quiet. Listen, pay attention, stay calm. This is the message to the positive. To the negative, he says, do not fear. Now, you don't tell someone not to fear unless they're afraid, okay? So he says, listen, pay attention, stay calm, don't be afraid, and don't be faint-hearted. Why not? You know, you, you, I mean, listen, Ahaz is like, he's in his mind, he's thinking things are clearly going south in a major way. These two fireballs are just the destruction. They're barreling through my nation. They're outside my front door. They're camped outside the city of Jerusalem. But God tells him, hey, 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 I know their plans. I mean, he, he rehearsed it for them. I know their plans. I know what they're aiming to do. It's not going to happen. Okay. In fact, he says, they aren't fireballs blazing through the land. He says, they're burnt out, smoldering fire brands. In other words, a couple of burnt out, like think of smoking matches. You know, they're already burnt out, they're just smoldering. He says, look, they have pride, no power to do anything they propose to do. Why not? God tells him, listen, you see, guys, it's all fine and well that they have a plan. You know, that the son of Remaliah that resin, they have a plan. That's all fine and well. The problem is, it isn't God's plan. Now listen, whenever there's a conflict of interest between the plans of man and the plans of God, whose plan you think is going to come to pass, going to be established? Um, the Bible says, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Okay? And again, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel 
against the Lord. You know, you can have your thoughts, you can have your plans, that's all fine and well. If it's not God's plan, it ain't going to work out. Okay? I like the way the prophet put it in Lamentations chapter 3. He said, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Guys, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Okay? Now that brings us back to that crossroad, that challenge. And the challenge to Ahaz was don't react in fear. Listen now. Maybe this is a word for somebody. Don't, because there you are, you're at a crossroad. Things are falling apart. You have every reason to believe it's going to cascade and snowball and it's going to go terrible. Listen, don't react in fear. Rest in the word or the promises of God, right? You know, you seem to be in an impossible situation. Here's the question. Is there anything impossible for me, says the Lord? He didn't want the king to make an unwise and frantic Decision and some kind of an alliance with another nation, which is exactly what he will wind up doing. Okay? But guys, I want you to notice something here, a detail that you may not just pick up on on the first glance through, and that is the outcome of what was going to happen here in this kind of this standoff, this things are getting ready to seem to go south. He says the outcome, it's going to be the same either way, okay? But the primary impact would weigh upon the king. Did you catch that? In other words, God told him their plans will not succeed. That settles the issue right there. In fact, God tells him they won't even be on the scene much longer, historically speaking. As for Israel, the northern kingdom, he says within 65 years, they're not even going to be a nation anymore. They're going to be broken. They're going to be carried away captive by the Assyrians. However, the king's decision about the word of God would impact him. Did you catch that? The course of his life, the course of his reign as the king would be weighing in the balance. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now what he wound up doing was rejecting the word of God, going to the king of Assyria, not Syria, which is uh, right now in league with Ephraim or Israel to the north, he went to Assyria and uh, he decided he would pay. He sent the king of Assyria this huge gift, this tribute, uh, gold and silver that he took from the temple and gave to this pagan uh, nation and asked him to come and rescue him, which he was more than willing to do uh, And it would, of course, snap back on them. But the question that's relevant to us as it pertains to all this is when trying and turbulent times are upon us, will we be moved by fear or will we trust God by faith? Okay? Now, learning to trust God in days of difficulty is that which will bring you peace. Okay, right now, you remember, uh, Ahaz, is, he's freaking out. He's responding in fear. His heart, remember, is swayed like the wind, like the, the leaves of the tree in the wind. It's shaken. It's unstable. He doesn't trust God. He's without 
hope being without God in the world. But listen, later on, Isaiah is going to say, you, that is God, you will keep him, who is him, whomever, it's you, it's the whosoever, in perfect peace, notice, whose mind is stayed on you, focused on you. Why? What does that represent? What does that reflect? If my mind is stayed on the Lord, it's because I trust in the Lord. Okay? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I don't understand it. I shouldn't have it, right? It's that peace that Paul talks about that passes or circumvents understanding. My life is in shambles circumstantially. Uh, in reality, it should be, I should be in panic mode. I should be freaking out, you see. But I have this peace. Why? I'm focused on the Lord. I trust in the Lord, and he's given me peace. Not trusting God for his promises doesn't affect the promise. You understand that. But it can affect my part in the promise. Okay? I like what Hudson Taylor wrote. He said, let us give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, are all right into God's hand. And then when we have given all to Him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. Think about that. Peter said it like this, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. And when you've given everything to Him, there's nothing left for you to worry about. Isn't that wonderful? You know, perhaps the devastation that had befallen Judah to this point had given Ahaz some justification in his mind to not trust God. I mean, if God's a good God, right? If God's a good God, why did he let us get into this place to begin with? I mean, why should I trust him now? And it's that familiar argument of so many. They want nothing to do with God. They make horrible decisions without regard to God that bring horrible ramifications into their lives. And then when God graciously reaches out, seeks to offer them a lifeline, they adopt the attitude, what have you done for me? You know, uh, why would I believe in you? And they essentially blame God for the fallout of the decisions that they've made. They make God out to be the bad guy when he's the one seeking to save them from the destruction that they've brought upon themselves. And so they try this, and they try that. Like Ahaz reaching out in every other direction, man, they're running from the Lord. Here's the question, when will you stop running from the Lord? Ahaz never did. But check it out. God goes even farther. He, he offers to confirm his word to him, to leave absolutely no doubt for him. Look at verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. Oh man, doesn't that sound so pious? Doesn't that sound so spiritual of Ahaz? 
I, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Hmm, must be a man of great faith. No. I mean, you know, after all, doesn't the Scripture say, you shall not tempt the Lord your God? Isn't that what the Bible says? The problem with that is that it's not testing or tempting the Lord if the Lord invites you to do so. Okay? It would be like refusing to tithe because God says in Malachi, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Check it out. And try me now or test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, how do you respond? I will not tithe, nor will I try the Lord in this. No, that's not pious. That's disobedience. You see, same thing here. God says to Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself. That's the instruction. That's the exhortation. Ask a sign for yourself, be it in the depth below or in the height above. In other words, whatever you can think of, it doesn't matter. You want me to part the Jordan River for you? You, you want me to uh, uh, turn the day into night? Uh, you want me to uh, move the sun backwards for you? I mean, what's the sign that's, that's going to uh, absolutely convince you? God says, whatever it takes to remove all doubt from you, that it's me who's speaking to you, that will, and I am the one who is assuring you that I am going to do what I said I will do. Imagine that. Just whatever you can think of. I'll do it, God says. Essentially, God is trying to take away any excuse, okay, that Ahaz may try and conjure up in order not to trust him. The truth be told, in not asking a sign, that's when he's truly testing the Lord. You see that? Trying God's patience. Trying God's grace through his sinful stubbornness and pride why? Listen to this. Because he knew, Ahaz knew, didn't he, that if God were to make himself real to him in a very specific, like detailed way, Ahaz says, I want you to, bip, 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 you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And God does that to the letter, takes away every excuse, reveals it in an undeniable way, then Ahaz would be obligated to serve him, to trust him to honor him. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that. Doesn't that blow your mind? Again, like so many, he'd rather go any other direction, try any other thing other than or outside of trusting the Lord. Think about that. Submitting himself to God. For whatever reason, some people have it in them that whatever direction God's going, I want nothing to do with it. I want to go the opposite way. They just want nothing to do with God. And that was Ahaz. We read in 2 Chronicles, now in the time of his distress, all this is coming upon him, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Think about that. You would think that in the time of your distress, you're growing increasingly closer to the Lord. I mean, you're drawing near, you're crying out. No. No, no. Pushing him farther, pushing him farther. 
It's sad. We, we, we see people like this. Now, in verse 13, then he, that is Isaiah said, hear now, O house of David. In other words, this is going out to the entire nation. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. You know, as if it wasn't enough to treat the people of Judah with contempt and disdain, Isaiah says, will you weary my God also? You know, the idea being that he's insulting God, that he's trying God's patience. He's treating God with scorn, refusing to trust him. Guys, think about it like this. Imagine if we treated others with the same lack of trust or respect that we so often treat the Lord. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, listen, there you are. Someone invites you over to their home for dinner. It's just a simple invitation. They say, you know what? I don't want you to worry about bringing anything. You know, uh, we want to take care of the whole experience. We just want to take care of you. We just want to be a blessing to you. You go, okay, that sounds good. And then you show up with, you know, all kinds of bags of food from your favorite fast food stop on the way to their house. And, you know, you, you have drinks, you have appetizers, you have desserts. I mean, the whole thing. And they're all, what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you doing? I mean, uh, I told you we're going to provide everything. And you're like, oh, no, 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 I know what you said. I just wasn't really sure that I could trust you to take care of it. So I went ahead and made sure it was covered. I mean, what an insult. What an offense. What dishonor to that wonderful family that just wanted to bless you. Guys, we do that to God all the time. Now, essentially what that communicates, now I know we would never think this way, maybe, or say these words out loud, right? But essentially what that communicates is one of two things. Either A, we don't believe God is real, or B, we think God is a liar and can't be trusted to do what he said he will do. That's really the bottom line of it. Do you see how that dishonors him? Uh, listen, if you're like me, I'm so grateful for the grace and the patience of God. Amen? That might be a whoo kind of a moment. I mean, I'm just, in my mind, I'm thinking, thank you, God. Because I so often illustrate, I, you know, I, for, for me, I mean, a, a lack of trust. Not truly taking his promise and, and walking in it, you know, the reality of it. I go ahead and just take care of it, just in case, you see. Mm. Verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what does Emmanuel mean? We sang it. God with us. This would be a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ 
you know, a young woman who was a virgin would be married, conceive, have a son, name him Emmanuel. This was the real-time reality of what was going to happen, a sign for Ahaz to know that God was real, was with him. The child would lead a humble and simple life being raised on curds and honey. Why? Before he, and he, so that he would know to re- refuse the evil and choose the good. And before he knew, in other words, before he came of age, probably before he was 13 when they would have the bar mitzvah and all the, the, you know, the, the day of the young man coming of age and all of that. But he says, within the next dozen years or less before that, both these kings that you currently dread will be dead. But you and I know, through the lens of the New Testament, that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy would be found in the person of Jesus Christ who would indeed be conceived of a virgin not just a virgin who got pregnant but a virgin who remained a virgin after she got pregnant Uh, she would be overshadowed the Bible says by the Holy Spirit and would conceive miraculously and the Holy One that she brought forth would in fact literally be God with us. Jesus would be the sign that God is with us, that he will deliver us, right? Not from military might or ungodly oppression, but from sin and death. Jesus, guys, he didn't just come into existence. I think some people are a little confused on the issue. Jesus didn't just come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. He is the eternal God who wrapped or robed himself in humanity coming down from out of eternity, uh, out of heaven to deliver us from sin. What does the Bible say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, right? And the Word, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that this foreshadowed. Perhaps you recall Joseph wondering what to do with Mary. There she is. She suddenly shows up pregnant, but they were, they were betrothed. They, they weren't officially married. They'd never consummated their marriage. And here she is. She's pregnant. He's wondering what to do. He wants to put her away silently because if he makes a big deal of it publicly, she'll be put to death. But he loves her and he's worried about it. And he's thinking, how do I do this? And he's, he's, he's just, he's heartbroken. And he went to sleep. He's thinking on it as he sleeps. You know, he goes to sleep on it. And an angel, the Lord, appears to him in a dream and tells him not to be afraid. Don't worry about it, Joseph. He said, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he said, she will bring forth a son. and You'll call his name Jesus, or salvation, Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. And we read, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God bless you. (laughs) But back to our text, the name Emmanuel was a rebuke to Ahaz. If God is with us, I've erred both in my fear and my lack of faith. You see, God is with us. Who who could be against us? And in verse 17, 
It says, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. In other words, Ahaz, probably one of the reasons why he wouldn't trust the Lord. Remember we talked about people trying everything other than the Lord. He's probably already considering, if not already having reached, well, we know that God was trying to get in front of that, but in his mind he was already thinking about uh, getting in league with the king of Assyria to come and rescue him. And so what God says here is, hey, look, you might think you're clever for doing this and all, uh, but it's going to snap back. It's going to haunt you. They would come. Ultimately, not only would he pay tribute to them, but it would be an ongoing. Eventually, they would come upon them. They would torture them. They would taunt them. They would humiliate them. And we'll see all this later on. Egypt would invade them as well. Look at verse 18. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys of the clefts of the rocks and all the thorns and in all the pastures. And in the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor. In other words, he's going to use the nation of Assyria. Remember, the shaving of the, of the eastern man was uh, absolute humiliation. You see this when David, remember, they took a couple of his soldiers, and they, they shaved their beard, and they cut their robe, and all. And David said, look, just stay. You know, he had them stay outside for a while until they grew their beards back because he didn't want them to come back in the camp and just feel humiliated. You know, so he say they're going to insult you. They're going to humiliate you. They're going to torture you. Uh, with the, he says, with those from beyond the river, the king, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs will also and all and will also remove the beard. So with the razor, they're going to shave the legs, shave the beard, remove the hair, just humiliate them. And it shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and so it shall be from the abundance of the milk they give, which is, would actually be a bad thing because there just weren't the people there. there weren't, they didn't have the, 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 uh, the offspring and all. that He will eat curds for curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. And it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines, right? Let me turn the page here. Worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because the land will be briars. In other words, they have to hunt. They, they, their vineyards are going to be gone. There's going to be wild animals in the land. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of the briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Wow. Um, and and uh, you can make your way forward here. But the idea here, guys, is that desolation and decimation would come upon them because of his rejection of the Lord and refusal to trust him. They would be, pardon me, <coughs> they would be brought so low that they wouldn't be able to farm as per usual. Agriculture would be devastated. Thorns and briars would grow over the previously fruitful land, and families would be forced to survive off whatever dairy would be provided by a cow and a couple of sheep. The take home would be this to willfully sin against God 
and set aside the instruction of His Word is to invite His judgment. That's the take-home. To willfully sin against God, to set aside the instruction of His Word is to invite His judgment. Now, listen. He's given you a sign, hasn't He? The sign of the prophet Jonah. Isn't that what Jesus said? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's taken away every excuse we have for not trusting Him, not believing Him. God is with us. And He's remedied the sin dilemma in the person of Jesus Christ. He's made the way. We can receive it or we can reject it. Now, it's God's heart that none would perish but that all would believe, receive Jesus Christ, and be saved. And so let's bow our hearts, and let's pray to that end. Father, may we learn the lessons of your word, that regardless of the trial or the trouble or the tribulation, the affliction, Father, that we trust in you, knowing that you are for us and not against us. You have our eternal best interests at heart. And we thank you for your love for us and all that you've done for us in the person of your Son. And Father, we just pray that... Uh, you would continue to challenge and change hearts, Lord, bring new life and be glorified in our lives and in this place. And I don't know, maybe everyone here knows the Lord. I think that's wonderful if that be the case, but maybe you're in a place where you don't know the Lord. You've not received the Lord. Well, God wants to make himself real to you. Don't deny him the opportunity. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen, salvation is available. Restoration for all who believe. But if you do not believe, you will not be established. You understand? So if God's knocking on the door of your heart, I'm just going to ask you to acknowledge that through a simple uh, raising of the hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ to turn from your sin, and to be saved. Is that a message that's resonating in anyone here this morning? Okay. Father, once again, I just pray that you continue to pour out your spirit. Lord, I pray that we as a body, as a fellowship would be Lord, in that place of remaining the, the new wineskin, so to speak, that you can pour your spirit out fresh and new and that it won't, we won't break or, uh, you know, uh, bust, or, but that we would just remain flexible and yielded and flowing with you, God. Whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. And Lord, that you would burden us for the hurt and the dying and the lost around us in this community in our families, whatever the case may be. And Lord, that our light would so shine that people would see you in us, be drawn to you through us, that you might be glorified.
Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. 